0: Well, let me do this. Why don't I pray, and then we'll jump into our study tonight. Ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank You so much for just another evening to gather together to open Your Word. Lord, we confess that tonight we need Your help. Every moment of every day, we need Your help. But we might even say, especially as we come and approach that which is supernatural, that which our flesh inherently would reject, Father, we pray that you, by your Spirit, might be merciful to us, open our eyes. As we've even learned in this psalm, we pray that you might cause us to behold wonderful things from, from your law this evening, and it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. All right, well, grab your Bibles, if you will, and let's make our way back to Psalm 119. We continue in our series here. Our uh, stanza, this. There we go. I haven't tried this clicker yet, but I'll try it here in a moment. But if if it doesn't work, Adam, you're you're there. So Um, the stanza we find ourselves in is uh, the psalmic stanza. If you're keeping track, verses one thirteen to one twenty. Um a section that I have labeled or titled, as you can see there, The Stabilizing Word in an Unstable World. The Stabilizing Word in an Unstable World. Why the Stabilizing Word? Because it just so happens to be that in Hebrew, this Word samik, which is the letter that begins every verse of this stanza, is also a word that refers to a pillar or support, and that is exactly what we find here, God and His Word to be for the psalmist, and that's indeed what God's Word is to us as Christians in an unstable world, isn't it? You, you, you know our world in the situation in which we find ourselves is unstable. Anybody feel that? Well, in this stanza, we're going to see the, the same contrast in one sense that we we see in Psalm 1 between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous are stabilized, we could say, by the Word of God as a tree planted by streams of water, but the wicked, you remember Psalm 1, are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away, and they will not stand in the judgment. My friends, there is so much that is unstable in our world today. The question this evening is, where do you run for stability and strength? How do you keep stability in the Christian life? Let's learn what what makes for a stable life from our psalmist tonight. Let's read these verses together. Verses 113 through 120. The psalmist writes this, I hate those who are double-minded, But I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Sustain me according to your word, that I may live. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me, that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Now, before I give you an outline, I just want to show you Some things here just by way of observation in the text, kind of like I did last time, uh, just to just to even help you think through, and as you study the Scriptures, um, how you might find these particular divisions that we give you as preachers. I want you to notice first uh, that even though none of the words at the beginning of these eight verses are the same, as we've seen in other stanzas of Psalm 119, The middle two verses here, verses 116 and 117, are very much parallel and use synonymous terms to express the psalmist's central concern and theme here. That is stability and support. You'll notice his back-to-back requests right in the dead center of the psalm or the stanza is, sustain me, verse 16, and uphold me. The focus at the heart of this stanza is on stability and strength for the Christian walk in life. And notice also, uh, just by way of of observation, how at least one synonym for the Word of God is mentioned in every single verse of this stanza. You can see those by the bolded letters. I don't know if you can see the bolded letters there. Some of you are squinting that to that, there you go, your law, your word, the commandments of my God, your word, your statutes twice, your testimonies, your judgments. Once in every verse of this stanza, you see uh, the word of God mentioned at least. But no- notice lastly how there are three verses, you know, to see, balanced on either side of the psalmist's central concern here. Uh, I try to divide that up by the paragraph spacing. But on the one side, verses 113 through 115, the focus is on the psalmist's personal decision regarding evil influences in his life, the unstable influences in his life, which I've indicated by coloring all the first-person pronouns red up there. While on the other side, balancing that out, Verses 118 through 120, also three verses, focus on God's final decision regarding evil men and evil influences, which I've indicated by the blue second-person pronouns. In other words, think about this. Notice how the psalmist's personal decision reflects God's final decision Concerning the wicked, the psalmist hates them and tells them to depart. Whereas God rejects them and removes them in His judgments. So there's quite uh, there there is quite the symmetry here in this particular stanza with these three divisions, two equal sections on either side of a prayer for stability and support. So if you're taking notes, in light of these three sections, I, I want just I want to draw out from these three spiritual realities that stabilize the soul. Three spiritual realities that stabilize the soul. That's our outline, at least how we're gonna to try to walk through this section tonight. First, spiritual reality. The determination of the righteous, we'll see in verses 113 through 115. In the middle there, we'll see dependence on God in the psalmist's prayer. And then the third and final section, to balance it all out, we'll see the destruction of the wicked in verses 118 through 120. Make sense so far? Uh, the first reality, let's notice it together, the determination of the righteous. Listen, if you, if you want to be stable in your faith and in the Christian walk, the psalmist here demonstrates for us that there, there must be a kind of determination. Look at verses 113 through 115. "'I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield.'" I wait for your word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Now, as you read those verses, there's something, I don't know if you notice very decisive and definitive about the psalmist's attitude of determination here in these three verses. In other words, these verses don't reflect a man who's Uh, You could say, happy to ride the fence or or wandering around in gray areas. These are not the words of a man who's uh, vacillating in his opinions about good and evil, undecided, undetermined. Spurgeon writes, rather, in this paragraph, the psalmist deals with thoughts and things and persons which are opposite of God's holy thoughts and ways. He is evidently in great fear of the powers of darkness and of their allies, and listen to this language, his whole soul is stirred up to stand against them with a determined opposition. That's what we find here. The psalmist is determined. In fact, notice how he begins in verse 113, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. In other words, we could even say this, the righteous are determined to love God's Word through doubt and doubters. That's what this determination first consists of. You think about the language here, there's no greater antithesis than love and hate, right? And here, the psalmist's determination to love the truth came with it a hatred for falsehood and uncertainty. These two attitudes include positions of being for and against. And and if you're for the truth, think about this, you, you must be at the same time against lies, against uncertainty, therefore... There was a definitive line, we could say, drawn in the psalmist's heart here. He had determined not only to despise one, but also to desire the other. And that must be the case if you're to have a stable Christian life. Amidst all that is uncertain, you must, at the heart and center of your soul, determine to hate that which is uncertain and vacillating and doubting God's word. Notice first what he determines to despise. Uh, The word he uses here is double-minded, and it can refer to people or it can refer to thoughts. John Gill writes of this word, the word is used for the opinions of men, the ambiguous, doubtful, wavering, and inconstant sentiments of the mind, and is used of branches, here's the picture, or the tops of trees waved with the wind to and fro. That's that, it's like over here and then over here, right? You've seen that when it's windy out. It's it's wavering. That's the picture. The term, like I said, could be describing here people, which is how the NAS translates it here, people, if it's applied to people, it's the psalmist then here is, is referring to those who are inwardly divided, who seek to serve two masters, who are duplicitous, half-hearted, doubting, and undecided about God and the worship of God. These are men who waffle and waver on what should be clear in Scripture. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce Writes: Double-minded people are people who know about God, but not but are not fully determined to worship and serve Him only. They are those who want both God and the world. They want the benefits of true religion, but they want their sin too. That, that, that's who this is describing. An appropriate illustration maybe comes to mind in First Kings eighteen, verse twenty-one, where, if you remember, God's people there are seemingly caught between the worship of Yahweh and the worship of Baal, and Elijah the prophet has to call them out for halting, you remember that language, hesitating, limping between two opinions. That's the idea here. In fact, even in the New Testament, James chapter 1 would write of this kind of a person, and he links this with doubt. And he says, the one who doubts, listen to this language, is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And later on in chapter 4, James would write, these are those who want God's help but also want friendship with the world. And so James calls them spiritual adulteresses. But if this term, it could it could also be referring here to... Um, The psalmist could also be referring here to his own thoughts, not just doubting people, but doubtful thoughts that creep up in his own mind, which is why several commentaries and translations have here vain thoughts or uncertain and unstable musings. Either way, What's clear here is that the psalmist despises all that is uncertain, unfaithful, and unsteady in others as well as in himself. Do you ever find yourself hating the fact that sometimes you wake up and you're just unsure about things that Scripture is clear about? The psalmist says he hates that. Listen, in the face of doubt and doubters, the psalmist, notice what the flip side of this is, though, to his hate. The psalmist was determined to love God's word. Is that your determination? When you see those who vacillate on truth, who compromise, and then you see that seed of temptation in your own heart, is your response to hate that because you love the truth? It is love for God's Word that creates stability in one's life. Listen, we need this, don't we? In an age of deconstruction, in an age of skepticism and postmodern thought, relativism, uncertainty, have you determined to love God's Word through doubt and doubters? If you haven't determined to hate, double-mindedness, and love the truth, you will struggle to find stability in this life. But notice next in verse 114, the righteous are also determined to hope in God's Word through danger. See, not only doubts, but also danger poses a threat to the stability of our souls at times, right? Notice what, though, the psalmist says here, verse 114, you are my hiding place and my shield, I wait for your word. See you hear, the background of the psalmist's trial and suffering that we have talked about in previous studies comes back into focus. And we, we could say that the language here implies a situation of danger because he speaks of God as his hiding place and shield. Right, these two terms. um, The the term hiding place is literally secret place. It describes a place of refuge that is hidden from the psalmist's enemies, where danger and calamity cannot find or reach him, out of sight, out of view. It's like a panic room, right, in your house. Psalm 27 verse 5 uses this word, For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. Here in the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. This is protection. And the same is true for the second term here, shield. It refers to that instrument of war that consisted of a A wooden frame uh, covered in leather to protect soldiers from the direct blows of the enemy during hand-to-hand combat situations. And so, think about those two pictures then. Um, One writer then says this about the combination of those two images. A hiding place suggests that danger, though real enough, is not yet at hand. It can still be averted, perhaps. A shield is needed when the hiding place no longer affords protection, when, when you've been found out and you're in the midst of combat, the dangers become immediate, a present tense peril. And so he says that the psalmist's first line of defense against his foes is God, and his final line of defense against his foes is God. That's good. That's the picture here. By the way, the, the word shield here, notice the language. Notice how it's used elsewhere. It's used... Also in Psalm 3, where the psalmist would write, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Listen to the language. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. You see, from from this cross-reference and others, we, we can conclude that with God as our shield, we not only have protection, but we have hope. And the same is true here. Notice the phrase here in that second line, I wait for your word. The verb here, to wait, it, it means to wait expectantly. It, it is a word of hope. It, it means to hope for something. And so to wait for God's Word, as one writer would argue, is then to wait for the fulfillment of thy promise. So think about what the psalmist is saying here. This is why I said um, the determination here is to hope through danger, because this is This is the posture of the Christian's defense in times of danger. This is what the righteous determine to do when they're faced with any kind of difficulty. They don't get down. They wait and they hope in the face of danger. And specifically, they wait on God's word to be fulfilled concerning their circumstance. Waiting on God's word... Listen, and not our own desires to be fulfilled is what the righteous do in the face of danger and difficulty. Because it's in that position they have protection. Christian, when God's word is what you hope for, he becomes your hiding place and your shield. But but in, in the moment that you hope in something else, your protection is gone. You're exposed. So let me ask you this evening, have you determined to hope in God's Word alone through danger? Whatever that is for you. Whatever that circumstance looks like. This is where stability of faith comes from. So, The determination of the righteous, they're determined to love through doubt and doubters, to hope through danger. And lastly, look at verse 115, the righteous are determined also to obey God's word through defections. Notice what he says here, depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Now, Matthew Henry observes here, those that resolve to keep the commandments of God must have no society with evildoers, for bad company is a great hindrance to a holy life. And similarly, uh, John Phillips writes this, it is a good thing to put distance between ourselves and those who would persuade or push us into doing something wrong. The Psalms saw separation as a means of maintaining a holy life. You see, the psalmist knew the kind of dulling and deluding influence upon his faith that bad company could have. Are you aware of that? So here he he commands these who would otherwise defect and have him defect, he commands them to turn aside from him so that he can more carefully obey the Word of God. That's the thrust of this verse, right? In fact, notice in the second line here that it isn't out of annoyance. It isn't because of his own comfort necessarily that he seeks to separate from those double-minded evildoers. What does it say? Actually, it was for the purpose of greater obedience to God's commands, by the way, this is the only time in the entirety of Psalm 119 where the psalmist speaks of, I believe, my God. Listen, Christian, haven't, haven't you found it more difficult at times to observe the commandments of your God when you surround yourself with those who, who just simply try to get you to relax and not be so serious about your faith? <laughs> Have you been in that situation before? Found yourself in a group of people like that? Or or have you ever been around or observed a number of defections? People just walked away from the faith and, and are seeking to convert others to atheism or some other false religion. Listen, the psalmist says here, that influence is dangerous. It dulls our ability to obey God the way we ought to. So so the question tonight then is, are you as determined as the psalmist is here? Let's learn from the determination of his heart To depart from them, as Thomas Manton put it, that depart from God. To depart from them that depart from God. Though all those around you may defect and seek to influence you the same. Christian, you must determine still to obey the Lord, even if that means it's a lonely path. Are you as determined as the psalmist here? Do you have the determination of the righteous that brings stability into your Christian walk in life. When you encounter doubts and danger and those who defect, are you as decisively determined to follow God and obey Him? So, that's the first spiritual reality that brings stability to the soul, the determination of the righteous. But notice second Second spiritual reality, really the bullseye here in this stanza that stabilizes us in our Christian walk, and that is not just determination, but dependence, dependence on God. Look at the middle two verses. we read them before, but look at them again. Sustain me, this is his prayer, sustain me according to your word that I may live. And do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. Now, again, as I said already, this marks the central concern and theme of this stanza. The reality is the psalmist knew that apart from God's sustaining, supporting, and stabilizing grace, no amount of His own determination would do, right? And so, he turns now to prayer for God to come to His aid. Charles Bridges writes this, Indeed, the highest archangel before the throne stands only as he is upheld by the Lord and may unite with the weakest child in the Lord's family in the acknowledgement, but but by the grace of God I am what I am. Matthew Henry writes, We stand no longer than God holds us, and go no further than He carries us. Do you believe that tonight, Christian? That you are in desperate need of God's help to have any kind of stability in this world. Therefore, it is this dependence on God's help that ultimately provides true stability and strength in times of uncertainty. So notice first that in verse 116 this dependence it looks to God for support in times of trouble for support in trials he says sustain me here's his first prayer request sustain me according to your word that i may live and do not let me be ashamed of my hope the the main request here in verse 116 to sustain comes from this root word that means simply to lean or rest upon something. It has the idea of supporting or bracing something or someone. The picture is that of, of someone being pushed and propped up. It's the idea. This is what the psalmist prayed for. That God himself would hold him up under the pressures of his trial in times of trouble. And beloved, and, and that, that oftentimes is what we need most, isn't it? When we sense that any more burden would just about break us, when, when we feel that we're buckling under the weight of our circumstances and sins, in those particular moments, we need God to bear us up, to be our buttress and support. But notice, how does He do it? Notice the psalmist says he does it according to his word, according to his promise. You know, what does this tell us? I love love the truth that this conveys to us. It tells us, Christian, that God is not stingy with his help, nor does he have to be persuaded by you or bribed or manipulated by you to come to your aid. Because why? He himself has already promised it. I love that. That's what he means here. That's what the psalmist appeals to. I love what Spurgeon says here. It is a sweet comfort that this great necessity of upholding is provided for in the Word. And we have not to ask for it as for an uncovenanted mercy, but simply to plead for the fulfillment of a promise saying, uphold me according to thy word. You see, this prayer of dependence is one that, listen, Christian, God loves to answer for His children. Isn't that sweet? Because it is according to His will and His word. And notice then the result of this request from God. The psalm says, then I may live. Then I may live. Listen, do we really believe that our entire lives every aspect of it, our beating heart and even the fullness of our life and enjoyment here on earth and our spiritual lives even, do we really believe that all of that is upheld by God at all times? Do you believe that? That if it were not for His help and His upholding, that our life would simply crumble Were he to put his hands down, so to speak, we would simply go out of existence. Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us this much, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Acts 17.25 says, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Notice the psalmist adds here though, "And, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. You see, the the request for support in times of trouble and trial can also be negatively expressed like this. Here's how. Lord, please don't let me down. God, keep holding me up. It is God's help that keeps our hope afloat when the weight of trials grow heavy upon us. That's what the psalmist is saying here. That's all he's saying here in verse 116. So, may I ask you this evening, is God your support in times of trial and trouble? Do you run to him and lean on him for support? Do you look to his promises and hope in his character as a buttress for your soul when you feel like the pressure is mounting and it becoming unbearable? We must depend on God for support in times of trial. But notice, second, that this dependence looks to God not only for support, but also for strength in times of weakness. Strength in times of weakness and limitation. Look at verse 117. He says, uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually now now the request here the verb in 117 uh, to uphold it's 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 very similar to the one made in the previous verse but this term actually includes the nuance now of strengthening and nourishing refreshing and sustaining the those like those who are weary and um as one would do by providing food and resources or refreshment. Listen to how the term is used in, if you're taking notes, Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. Just write it down. Psalm 104, 14 and 15. "'God causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that He may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad.'" So that, listen, he may make his face glisten with oil and food which, here's our word, sustains man's heart. You see, that's the nuance here. Whereas before the imagery was architecture, here the imagery is nourishment and strength. Christian, it is God and His Word that ultimately strengthens and refreshes our souls. You know this, don't you? Man does not live by bread alone. You see, the psalmist understood what Hebrews thirteen nine says: that it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods. And no doubt this is the same truth found in that famous passage in Isaiah 40, verses 30 and 31, that though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain, their new, will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. You see, the psalmist knew this, and so this was his prayer and petition. Not only did he depend on God to uphold him and support him in the midst of trials, when the weight seemed unbearable, he also depended on God for strength to carry out the task that God has put before him. Notice the result of this kind of strengthening from God here. And here it's twofold with two sort of similar and parallel clauses First, then, here's the first result, then I may be safe. The second, then I may have regard for your statutes continually. Let's look at the first here. The word for safe actually has the sense of uh, deliverance and freedom from that which previously limited us. That's really the idea. It's not the best translation maybe. It's safety because we've been released from bondage, I guess is the way. It's deliverance. It pictures, actually, the widening of a path, the removal of restraints. This is like, for you car people, this is like taking the governor off the Christian life. The effect of this spiritual freedom is therefore, notice the second result, greater and more consistent obedience than or that I may have regard for your statutes continually. And so, think about that. The progression here describes the experience of someone whose, whose spiritual sense has been Spiritual senses, rather, have been turned loose and set free by the strengthening and sustaining grace of God, and the result is a free and fervent servant service to Christ. That's what he's describing here. That's what this divine strength provides for the Christian. John Gill writes, being upheld, saints hold on and out to the end. They go from strength to strength, run and are not weary, walk and faint not, and having a supply of the Spirit, walk on in the judgments of the Lord and keep His statutes and do them. So Christian, do you depend on God for strength in the Christian life? I mean, think about this. If you at all find yourself tonight just weary from the battle, it, it it could be that you are depending on your own strength and not on God. So, stability in the Christian life comes from dependence on God for support in times of trouble and strength in times of weakness. And notice, just by way of observation again, in these two particular verses then, There are at least four things that depend on God's grace. Our life, our hope, our safety, and our obedience. Uh, Apart from God, listen, all these are uncertain and unstable and will rise and fall perhaps with your circumstances. If you want stability for your life, if you don't want your hope to go up and down, if you don't want your safety, your sense of security and freedom to be vacillating, if you don't want your obedience to wax and then wane and a little here, a little there, then depend on God. Go to Him. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. Look to Him. So notice then, uh, finally, the third and final spiritual reality that should bring stability to our souls, not just determination of the righteous or dependence on God. This last one's really interesting and maybe the least intuitive to us all final spiritual reality that should bring stability to our souls is the destruction of the wicked. Notice verse 118 to 120. You've rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. You've removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. Just a weird connection, isn't it? My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. The contrast that surfaces here is vivid. Now, unlike the psalmist who is upheld by God, here the wicked are rejected and cast down. Instead of help for the righteous, here we find destruction for the wicked but notice first here in verse 118, this destruction is clarifying. Look at what he says. You've rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. What do I mean by clarifying? Well, it, in other words, it, it clears up for us what might be unclear in this life, right? In this life, what does it look like sometimes? In this life, sometimes it looks like the wicked prosper and the righteous are punished. And so that, doesn't it shake up our faith sometimes, bring instability into the Christian life? The psalmist says, look, when we come to realize the clarifying nature of this inevitable destruction of the wicked... That should motivate us to stable faith in our God, stable living. Uh, The term have rejected here is a rare word. It it only occurs elsewhere in Lamentations 1 verse 15 in a context of judgment um, where Jeremiah would write, the Lord has rejected all my strong men in my midst. He has called an appointed time against me to crush my young men, and the Lord has trodden as a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. You notice there even it's unexpected that, it's, that God would have rejected the strong men. And notice here in the text who it is that God rejects and casts down. It's all those who wander It describes those who aimlessly and carelessly drift or meander and get off course and go wrong, um, go the wrong direction in their moral life because they lack conviction and instruction. These are those who are not tethered to the Word of God. They have no stable commitment, no truth to anchor them, no principle to guide or direct them. They have nothing to keep them from walking into the path of error. Proverbs 5.23 says, He will die, this man, for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will, here's our term, go astray. That's who God rejects. The second line of this verse further describes the reason of their rejection, notice, for their deceitfulness is useless. Uh, this line is, uh, it's, it's a little bit difficult to interpret, but it, it essentially refers to the unreliability, the hypocrisy, and the self-deception of these men. John Calvin would put it this way. By these words, this prophet teaches that the wicked gain nothing by their wiles, but that they are rather entangled in them or at length discover that they were mere sleight of hand. The prophet means that however well-pleased the wicked are with their own cunning, they yet do nothing else than deceive themselves with falsehood. Like that's why I I say that that the destruction of the wicked is clarifying because these people Don't think and don't realize that their doom is sure and certain. These people, those who wander, who are just walking around, deceiving themselves, thinking everything is okay, the psalmist says here God has definitively rejected, and their destruction is certain and coming. The psalmist says the thought of that ought to drive us to stable faith, so that we don't, so that we're not tempted to chase after what they have, what they the the lot that they seem to have in this life. The destruction of the wicked is clarifying. Notice second verse 119, that this destruction is also purifying. He says, you've removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. It's purifying. This verse parallels verse 118. Not only has God decidedly rejected the wicked, He will also cause them to cease or literally remove them as worthless material in a refining process. That's what it, that's what the language here refers to. The term here for dross refers to a very specific and picturesque process of smelting and refining metal in the ancient world. And uh, other places in the Bible, God's judgment is depicted in this way, Malachi 3, 2 and 3. God is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. This is consistent, this picture, it's consistent with the language of final judgment given to us in Second Peter 3 verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And then also the picture that Jesus himself paints, remember, of the final judgment in Matthew 13, listen to verses 49 and 50, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what the psalmist is referring to here. So again, Matthew Henry writes, This wicked people are as dross, which though it be mingled with the good metal and the ore and seems to be of the same substance with it, must be separated from it. And in God's account, they are worthless things, the scum and refuse of the earth, and no more to be compared with the righteous than dross with fine gold. And notice in the second line here, Verse 119, the effect that this purifying destruction has on the psalmist. Therefore, I love your testimonies. In other words, the thought and the reality of this purifying and clarifying destruction of the wicked drove him closer to God's word. It laid a more stable foundation for him to walk upon it caused him to cling all the more to god 's testimonies. This is the stabilizing effect that god's the knowledge of god's judgment against sinners will have for his own people. But notice lastly in verse one twenty that this destruction is also terrifying. The psalmist concludes this stanza by saying this, my flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments. And in these last, uh, well, in this last verse we see how the psalmist's attitude of dread over God's judgment on the wicked brought stability to his life. The verb tremble here means to shiver or shudder, literally to bristle up. And it refers to that sensation of uh, your skin crawling or um, getting goosebumps is kind of what we think of, or having the, the hair stand up on the back of your neck. That's what the, the language here is. It's it's illustrated for us in Job 4, verses 14 and 15, where Job would write, dread came upon me and trembling, and made all my bones shake, the hair of my flesh bristled up. That's this response, almost this visceral response to this, the thought of God's judgment. And notice here the object of this fear and dread is God Himself. In other words, you could say there is such a thing... Even for the Christian, as a proper fear of God that though it causes us to tremble and quake, it brings spiritual stability to our lives. In fact, it is true, as John Gill observed, that the thought of judgment, isn't this true, is more awful to good men than to the wicked themselves. Because the wicked are hardened, they don't care until it comes upon them suddenly. Such should be the effect on those who know the Lord when they hear of God's judgment upon the wicked. So let me ask you tonight, do you believe that this will happen? No matter what the condition of the world seems to be today, do you believe God will destroy the wicked. Only a true belief in the destruction of the wicked can settle and stabilize the soul to remain faithful in such a fallen world, a world where evil men still mix with the precious metal of God's people. There's coming a day, Christian, when that is not going to be the case. And that reality should spur us on and bring stability to our faith in an unstable world.